It's a bit like uh, trying to mount a horse <laughs> to get situated here. We're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of James. We're entering the fifth chapter. That's the last chapter in the letter of James. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, there's little blue Bibles in your pew. It's on page 1013. If you brought your Bible from home, turn to it. If you want to just listen, that's fine too. Let me pray for us as we turn to the letter of James. Lord, we thank you for the promise that your word does not return void, which means this will not be a worthless endeavor. For anyone in the room, anyone listening, Lord, um, you promise that your word doesn't return void. So I pray for everyone in the room now, everyone within the hearing of my voice, um, that they would be ministered to by you, God. They need it more than they even know. And I just pray you would be so kind, Lord, as to minister to us today through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A study was conducted this year um, by an organization at the University of Chicago called the National Opinion Research Center. And the study, the study asked the question, what do Americans value and how might these values be changing? So they were comparing data from a study in 1998 to this study done in 2023. And they found that there were three traditional values that had been in decline. Those values were patriotism, faith, and family. They all were in decline. So for example, in 1998, 62% of Americans said that faith was an important value in their lives. In 2023, that number went down to 39%, almost a 50% decrease in really not that much time. There, there was a value, however, that the study discovered that has increased, something that Americans value more now than they did in 1998. The only priority tested, the study states, that has grown in importance in the past quarter century is money. So this is me now, not the study. So for the, for the average American, love of or interest in God is getting smaller and love of money is getting bigger. God is getting small and we are getting big. So you could say that for Americans, we care more that we'll have a big retirement fund than we do about whether or not we'll have eternal life. You know, that was the question the young man asked Jesus in the parable from Matthew 19. He didn't come talking about commandments and money. He said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? He wanted to know. Americans don't care much about that question. Apparently, I care more about money. So our, our passage in James today, it deals with money. This is the topic. Or you could say more specifically, it, it deals with a category of person who has a lot of money, who has fallen into a sickness you might call the love of money, and goes so far as to abuse people to gain money. So, so James comes out in verse 1 of chapter 5 
sounding more like an Old Testament prophet than a pastor. Here's verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This isn't a seeker-sensitive part of James' sermon. He's not trying to comfort people. He's literally saying, weep with howling because of the miseries that are coming for you. Now, I don't imagine that too many of us fall directly in the category of wealthy Mediterranean elite landowners. These are, these are people, these are landowners in the first century who controlled not only purse strings, but legal courts, who were, as James will tell us, you'll see this in a moment, they were defrauding their employees and then they were swimming in luxury and decadence. Maybe that's not a good description of you. I don't know, maybe it is. However, underlying James' condemnation of corrupting riches lies Jesus' consistent teaching or warning about the danger of riches or the danger of loving money. No servant can serve two masters, Jesus said. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Luke 16, 13. So I, I think we all should listen to James' denunciation. That's basically what this section is. It's a denunciation of opulent and abusive wealth. I think we should listen to it, even though it's harsh. And in doing so, we should ask what God might have to say to us about our own relationship with money. You know, it's a barometer for your spiritual health. So we'll, we'll walk through this passage and we'll note three things that I think will help us think about our relationship with money, both individually but also as a church. We'll notice, one, that money can corrode. Second, that money can strive against justice. And third, we'll hear a word from the man who lost everything. So first, money can corrode. Notice that in verse 3, we have the terms corroded and corrosion. They're both there. Things are corroding. Now, the, the English word corrosion comes from a Latin word that has as part of its root the word rodent. It's the word for rat. Corrode, corrodent. So corrode literally means gnaw through, to eat through something. So James saying, is saying that a certain type of riches gnaws through things. Now, the first thing ironically he points out is that riches themselves corrode. So verses 2 and 3, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The image, you could think of it as someone with a necklace on that's corroding, that is then corroding her skin. Wealth in the ancient world came in the form of grain, garments, and precious metals like gold. And given time and the influence of the elements, these things could corrode or they could be stolen. Even today in our world, markets are not impervious to the ups and downs of our world. Our wealth also itself can corrode. So this is the first thing James is pointing out. Don't hoard your money. 
It'll eventually run through your fingers. It's not bad to say. That's not what he's talking about here. But Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. When it comes to resources God gives you, he wants you to be more like a spring or a flowing stream than a stagnant pool. Let things flow through your life to others. Don't hoard them. So riches themselves can corrode when we hoard them. That's the first thing James is saying about how riches can corrode. But he goes on to say something a little deeper. He points out that riches not only corrode themselves, money corrodes itself. He says that they can corrode the holder of them or the user. So those who think they possess riches can, can end up coming under a type of possession, being corroded by them. So verse 5, he says, you lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Self-indulgence speaks of indulging beyond the bounds of propriety. Fattening the heart is an image of a type of spiritual gluttony or emotional gluttony. These words, um, they point to a type of vice that was spoken of in the ancient world under the term Avarice. You ever heard that word? It's a great word, avarice. Go home and look it up. We, we might refer to it as greed. It's an inordinate desire for things. It's an ever-increasing appetite that cannot be satisfied. Solomon wrote about it a few hundred years before James in Ecclesiastes. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Even outside the biblical world, in James' day, Seneca, a Roman statesman and philosopher, writing from Italy about the same time as James, he spoke of avarice or greed. Avarice, by craving much, lost all. That's a great sentence. He goes on, there is no avarice or greed without punishment. Oh, how many tears, how many hardships it requires. A greater stock of money is possessed than is demanded. Whatever is not acquired is a loss. What does this tell us about ourselves? You see, what, what seems to be happening is James is starting with money or riches, but he's now dribble, drilling into what you might call an appetite or our desires. Notice the language. He talks about us having fattened hearts. It's, it's the idea of, of feeding. There's some connection between money and appetites. You ever notice how some of the things people call money? Dough, bread, cheese. I got dough stacks, man. It, it's, it captures the idea that money can buy you things like food, of course, and that's a good thing. Money can be a great tool. But it drills a little deeper to point out that with money, we are trying to satisfy an appetite that runs deeper than our belly. We can, we can decipher two things from this, I think. The first, in the, between this relationship between money and appetite, the first is that our souls have appetites. So you have a physical appetite and you also have a spiritual appetite. And it's really complex. It plays into your psychology, your physiology. I mean, you have a spiritual appetite. And what we see in the Bible and we look around is that many of us, for many of us, our appetites are under, underdeveloped. 
Our appetites are actually in adolescence. If your greatest love is money, you have an adolescent appetite. You, you, you know that, um, you see, it's, it's, not that, it's not that people love money too much. It's that they don't love true treasure enough. They don't have a greater love that they're after. I mean, don't you find it somewhat sad when you see a person live their whole lives and never get beyond the love of stuff and money? You know, you can develop an appetite, and your appetites can change drastically. I remember being a little boy. I had two loves, G.I. Joes and Superman. These like, like, you know, Flash, Aquaman, Batman, Superman, and I had these little men, I called them, and I carried them everywhere, and I wanted them to be in bed with me. And I, and I remember every now and then my mom would say to me, you know, there's going to come a time when you don't like these anymore, you're not as interested in them. And I, I just thought this was horrible. I couldn't fathom not liking my toys. But then you grow up and you, you, don't, you don't know when it happens or how it happens, but suddenly your appetite is for something bigger than toy trucks or playing house. You want to go play career, right? And so you see, you see, if our appetites only want worldly riches, they are in adolescence. There is a type of satiation, a satisfaction of the soul that the palate must be developed for the same way a wine connoisseur would say, you won't like the taste of good wine right now, but I could teach you. I could develop your palate so that you would get more joy out of better wine. There is a development of the palate that a love of money or an underdevelopment of the palate that a love of money is exposing. So at this point, all we've really said is money can corrode. It can corrode itself, but it also, a love of it can begin to corrode the soul and leave the soul's appetites not just unsatisfied, but underdeveloped. So we need to move on to our next point now. So money can corrode. Money can be bad for you if it's mishandled or if you love it too much. But James doesn't stop with, with the, the dangers of money upon the holder. He moves next to the dangers of money in, in terms of how it can affect society or affect other people. And here we're going to see that James begins to say that not only can money corrode, the individual holds it, but money can come to corrode justice. Money can actually strive against justice. So we see here that riches lead to a growing disregard for justice. So in verse 4, the rich have begun to shirk their obligations and defraud their workers. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They're defrauding their own employees. Then in verse 6, if you drop down to verse 6, it seems that James is saying that, that these wealthy landowners, which often could be the case in the ancient world, they controlled everything, including the court system. So it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's the image of a person who's not only being defrauded, they have no recourse for justice. They're voiceless. A love of riches can outstrip a love of justice and righteousness. 
Jesus says of the Pharisees in Luke 16, the Pharisees, now by the way, this is right after Jesus taught that you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and money, right? He teaches that. Luke 16, verse 14, we pick up. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You see, what's happening is, You can get wealthy enough and powerful enough that you literally begin to believe that you're above justice, that you're one of the people that actually dictates and controls what justice is. Now, we might not think this would ever happen to one of us, that a love of money in our lives would strive against a compassion for justice. But consider consider what happened to Elizabeth Holmes. You know her story Elizabeth was just 19 when she dropped out of Stanford. Bright-eyed, brilliant, and ambitious. She wanted to help the world. She had a brilliant idea that would transform the world of blood testing. She started a company, Theranos. And it seemed a huge success at first. She had to deal with Walgreens. These systems were going to be put in every Walgreens. One drop of blood can test your blood. Forbes in 2015 named her the youngest and wealthiest self-made female billionaire in the United States. There was just one problem. Her invention didn't work. But she had so much money and so much fame and so many investors, she couldn't tell them the truth. And she began to defraud them. She was eventually convicted of fraud and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Fortune magazine now has named her in an article titled The World's 19 Most Disappointing Leaders. If you would have met Elizabeth Holmes in high school or in her first year on college campus, wide-eyed, bright, 18, so excited about helping others, you never would have imagined she would end up in jail for defrauding people. She wouldn't have imagined that. What happened to her? Love of money. That much money that much fame, that much position, suddenly began to strive against her deeper sensibilities for a love of justice. Friends, if you really think about it, underneath so much large-scale injustice in our world is disordered loves. Most people don't wake up in the morning and think, you know what I want to do? I want to be unjust today. That's what I want to do. I'm just malevolent and wicked and mean. No, they love something, comfort, prestige, wealth, And in order to keep it, they can't keep justice. So a love of money, know this, mark this, a love of money in your life will at some point threaten a love of justice. Now, in James' day, these people didn't have a recourse to legal courts in the same way we do. Or so it seems they didn't. This is why I think he says at the very end of the passage He does not resist you. He can't. The poor person that's being defrauded has no recourse. And so this is why I think in this theme of of a love of money striving against justice, this is why I think that, that James brings in the judgment of God. Did you notice that theme here? If you were to try to paint this passage, James 5, verse 1 through 6. If I was like, paint it for me. In the foreground of the painting would be us. It would be Christians listening. On stage in the painting would be the rich and the poor. In the background, 
would be the judgment of God. Let me, just, let me just read it to you and you can tell me, how would you paint this? This is the background. Verse one, weep for the miseries that are coming upon you. What would you paint? Clouds with a little slap on the wrist? What, what's, miseries are coming upon the rich. So, so James is seeing the rich defrauding unrepentant, totally wicked, and he looks up and he sees coming on the clouds, miseries. Verse 3, he speaks of the last days. You're treasuring up treasures on earth on the last days. Verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. What's all this language mean? Misery is coming upon you the last days. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is all language that James is pulling from the Old Testament that all speaks about something known as the day of the Lord. This is a day when the Lord will come to earth. He will return to bring about justice. The thing that everybody talks about wanting. God's going to come and he's going to bring it. So centuries earlier, Isaiah the prophet pronounced judgment upon Babylon with words very similar to James. Listen to this. He says, wail. Same word James uses, wail. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. This day was at times likened to a day of slaughter by the prophet of Jeremiah. And this was because it was a day of judgment that would be marked with blood. This is just the Bible. So here's Revelation 19. This is what James has in mind if you're interested in really knowing what he means. So Revelation 19, this is John the Apostle. He says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Wail, James says, to the rich, the arrogant, the opulent, who mock God and crush the poor. He says, wail, for the rider on the white horse is coming. This teaching about the final judgment of God, which, which makes all the logic work, in Christianity and the passage in James, this teaching, it's fallen out of favor, not just with the world, but with Christians. And this is even despite the fact that we speak of it every single Sunday. You need to talk about the judgment of God every Sunday when we say the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is, this is what the creed's talking about. But I think what we miss when we reject the justice and judgment of God is we miss how it's functioning for the poor and needy. This is meant to comfort them. You, you understand the logic of what James is saying. He's speaking to people who have no hope in this life. They are going to be oppressed. He has in mind the two million children who have been sold into slavery for sex trafficking right now in our world, many of whom will never get out. Their names will never be known. They will just be tortured to death. He, he stands up in front of all that injustice that we can't fix. We try, but we can't make up for it. Not perfectly. He stands over it all through the centuries and he looks at the oppressors and he says, your time for honoring yourselves will soon be at an end and you should tremble. That's the feel of this passage. 
So let's just pause here to try to apply this to ourselves a little bit. So let me ask you a question if you're a Christian. Do you live in the present in light of the end? Does God's approaching judgment, and James seems to be saying it's coming, it's coming fast. Does it have any existential impact on your life? How you treat people, how you handle money, how you cling to Jesus. You know, the ethics of the Bible, Christian behavior, is all predicated on this. You know, in, in um, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for, this is the reason they're blessed, they will see God. He's talking about God coming back and vindicating them. Does, does this have any impact on your life? You know, I've heard people say sometimes, they'll speak of people and they'll say, he or she, he, he is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I've never met anyone like that. The people I know who are incredibly heavenly minded are a huge blessing to me in my earthly life. But what I worry about for the church in America is that we're becoming so earthly minded we might not be any heavenly good. Read James closely. Know what he means when he talks about the day of slaughter, the last days, the miseries that are coming. That's a question for Christians. A question for, for you if you're not a believer. I hope there's at least one person here who God has brought to hear this, who doesn't know the Lord. Um, have you accepted Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? You see, if you do, He will take this coming judgment of God, the justice of God, He will take it, the, the stuff that's meant for you, and he'll, he'll, he'll take it on Himself on the cross he will bear the wrath of God for you on the cross so that on the last day, which is in your future, on the last day when God returns and you're presented before him, Jesus will present you without spot or blemish. And you will say, just like Paul does, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, there's such a desire, I think, in churches to be polite, to make you laugh, to be kind of nice. And I, I just, I just want to say again, James at this point of the letter could give a rip about your feelings right now. He cares about your eternal well-being. And he says, please do not trifle with the approaching judgment of God. God will not be mocked. You today can cling to Jesus. And it all can be forgiven. So that's the second point. A love of money can put us in a place where we strive against justice. The justice for others and the justice of God. Third and finally, we're going to close with this. We've seen that money can corrode. Money can put us against justice. Now we're going to see... We're going to hear a word from the righteous man who lost everything. In, in verse 6, James says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This righteous person, it's singular. You could, you could translate it, you've, you've condemned and murdered the righteous one. He doesn't resist you. There's some debate. Who does James mean? I kind of think he means, you know, any righteous people, any of God's people who are being oppressed and have no recourse to defend themselves. 
But I also can't help but notice that if you're reading this in the first century, it would be impossible to hear of the righteous one who was murdered without resistance. It would be impossible to read that and not think about who? Jesus. In several places in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the righteous one who went to the slaughter without speaking out. Jesus is the righteous one. He's the only true righteous one. And and I want you to see here that Jesus is the one who lost everything. We read in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Philippians 2, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Friends, every treasure you seek, and what I mean by that is everything you love most, deep down in your heart you have a most love, something you love most. Everything you treasure ultimately will require your life. And this is because what you treasure you love and what you love you follow and you serve. So what you treasure is going to cost you your life. You will give your best energy, your best plans. You will order things around it. What you treasure will cost you your life. Jesus, however, is the only treasure you can have that gave up his life in order to purchase you. He's not only the only treasure that will always satisfy you and ultimately satisfy you. He's the only one you don't have to pay for. He he gave his life. He paid everything to purchase you. What does this tell us about the appetite that money seems to highlight in our lives? What what does it tell us that, that if Jesus is our greatest treasure, which is a teaching right in the Bible... And he says, don't love money and treasure money over me. What does it mean that that Jesus says that the satisfaction of our heart, the treasure we need is actually him? It's a person. It means that our deepest need, our, our deepest craving is relational, not material. You know, there's a study done, to quote another study, on um, 268 Harvard sophomores. It was started in 1938. You may have heard of it. And the scientists followed these, these students through their whole lives. So they had 80 years of data. And they were asking the question, what makes a person happy and stable? These Harvard grads went on to be businessmen, doctors, lawyers, schizophrenics, alcoholics, you name it. And the surprising finding was this. Close relationships more than money or fame are what keep people happy throughout their lives. This is what the study revealed. Those ties protect people from life's discontents, help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. The appetite you have is for a person, not a thing. And friends, this is the second thing. Your appetite's for a person. You don't have to have money. You don't have to be rich to get this treasure. You don't have to have any money to get Jesus. You don't have to be important, smart, good-looking, from a good family, have a good fortune. You just need to have the need for Jesus. And you can begin to open your heart to him right now and begin to say, I know what I need is a relationship with my maker. Please don't let me sell my soul to trinkets and stuff in its place. So, 
That's a word from the man who lost everything to purchase you. Let me close with two simple applications, both from Jesus. So we've been talking about money. We've been warned about its corrosive danger. We've been, we've been warned that it can put us against justice. But to close, friends, money is not inherently bad. It's neutral. It can be a great gift in your life if you know how to steward it. It's also dangerous. It's like handling a live wire, power, but it can electrocute you. So here's two words from Jesus, the man who gave up all his wealth to purchase you. Here's two words from him to close. Number one, Jesus says, be good stewards, not hoarders of what comes into your life. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Jesus talks about being faithful with whatever you have. That means have a plan, steward your money. If you're a Christian, you should give at least 10% of your money back to God. I would recommend giving it to your church because that's the place where God's going to build those relationships up that will long-term sustain you. But give your money back to God. And we talk all the time about lifting our souls up to God, giving ourselves to God, surrendering to God, and we hold back our money. It's hugely incongruent. That's the place where you're going to begin to feel what it means to give yourself to God. So have a plan. Don't live above your means but be good stewards. That's the first thing Jesus says. And by the way, give thanks for wealthy Christians. Give thanks for rich people who love the Lord. Why? Think of um, Phoebe in Romans 16. Read the beginning of Romans 16. Paul thanks Phoebe, a woman who he says has been his patron and the patron of many. Phoebe was a wealthy woman who probably opened her home and helped provide for the apostles. Give thanks for wealthy people who love God. They are a huge help to God's work. Pray for them also because they handle something that can be dangerous. Secondly, so be a good steward. Second from Jesus, be on guard against the love of money. Jesus says in Luke 12, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Just think about that. We close with this. He says, literally what it says is, see, be aware and guard yourself against the love of money. This means asking yourself some tough questions. What would happen to you if you had to downsize? How hard would it be if you couldn't have a second car? How hard would it be if you had to go down in terms of the brand value of your car or your clothes? Why would that be so hard? How much does your trust in your bank account affect how you trust in God? Ask yourself, Jesus says, be on guard against the love of money. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are, in terms of global standards, a rich people. And we are a wealthy church in terms of global standards, Lord. Have mercy upon us, Lord. May we learn the secret that it is better to give than to receive. Protect us from the love of money. And may our resources flow through our hands into yours. And we ask that by them you would build up the kingdom that will last. Amen.